You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 30th of January 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliette Foster and on today's show, Donald Trump the peacemaker? How close is the US president to brokering a peace deal in Afghanistan? Tightening the financial tap? Why is China cutting back the money it's lending to developing countries? My guests Daniela Pellet and Jonathan Fenby will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including as supporters of France's Yellow Vest movement step up their anti-government protests, are their actions making the public more engaged with politics. All that plus Times Square, Stonehenge, the Leaning Tower of Pisa and the Avenue of Stars. Sites worth seeing or giving a miss. What are the world's worst tourist traps? That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Daniela Pellet, Managing Editor of the Institute for War and Peace Reporting, and Jonathan Fenby. He's the former editor of the South China Morning Post and now the Chairman of China Research and Director of European Political Research at TS Lombard. Welcome both of you to the programme. Now, is Donald Trump on course for achieving a peace deal in Afghanistan? If recent events are anything to go by, the signs do look promising. Earlier this week, the US president's special representative for Afghanistan reconciliation revealed that after six days of negotiations, he had achieved a framework for a peace deal with the Taliban, something that has eluded American diplomats and presidents for over a decade. Meanwhile, another round of talks are scheduled to take place later next month in Qatar with Mullah Abdul Ghani Barada, a former Mujahideen fighter leading the Taliban side. So, Danielle, how would you rate the chances for peace? Just on that broad brush sweep, uh, the signs are looking fairly positive. Well, I think uh, Washington, what Washington has uh, is more of a blueprint for getting its troops out of Afghanistan rather than anything to do with a with a lasting peace. Uh, there needs to be direct negotiations between the government in Kabul and the Taliban before any peace deal can be brokered. I mean, it's ludicrous to think that it can be any other way. The Taliban say they refuse to do this, saying that the government are just pawns of the uh, of, of Washington. Uh, and the fact that um, Ashraf Ghani's government has no say in this it really just does not give them any extra legitimacy or any extra weight. The point is not what happens about signing a peace deal and the troops leave. I mean, the Americans have already given away their biggest uh, bargaining tool. That is the the starting point for the Taliban, that American troops leave. What happens next? Uh, and it's just as rash to uh, for Americans to send their forces in to conflict without thinking about the day after as to withdraw them uh, without thinking about the day after. Obama's experience in Iraq, um, which seems very plausibly to have fueled the rise of Islamic State, don't really bode well for an American president really quite desperate to take his troops out at any cost. Mm. And, and Jonathan, I guess the question has to be, look, even if you do get both sides talking, whatever, can you trust the Taliban? Can you rely on their sincerity? Or could they renege on anything that may be concocted? Yes, they could renege on anything. And that, that will be the question. But I think, as, as Daniel was just saying, uh, the real thing, the motivation in this is mainly from Trump, who wants to get the troops home there. Mm. In keeping with the promise that he made to the base. Yes, indeed, indeed. You know, and that follows on from Syria uh, and so on. And it's almost saying, well, if it then goes to hell in a handcart, 
so be it, I think. And that's a considerable danger there. Mm. But then uh, you've got the the talk from the special representative, Daniela, who said that uh, he's brokered a framework. What is this framework and just how viable is it? Well, the framework uh, rests on guarantees that the Taliban will give to prevent uh, and refuse to host al-Qaeda or Islamic State forces in any area under their control. But if the aim of the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan was to make it make it a guarantee that it would no longer be a base for uh, attacks, then they managed that by uh, December 2001. That's not really what's been going on here. And the mission has been confused. Obviously, that's very difficult. And was it a development? Um, was it reconciliation? Was it nation building? With so many different actors involved, it's been extremely difficult. But the the only I think all parties do agree that a peace process is the only um, way forward. The Taliban have to be brought into the uh, brought into government mm. too, or certain elements of them. And there's a lot to lose uh, in this, not least uh, very hard won uh, women's rights uh, and more progressive uh, elements. But there's no other way. I mean, that is the only way that, that, that peace can be built. And uh, Ashraf Ghani has been working on this. Uh, we have seen some uh, we have seen some progress. There was a, an unprecedented ceasefire at the end of the last Ramadan. Um, but in terms of actual um, leaps forward, there's no progress from the Kabul side while the American uh, parallel negotiation is going on. Jonathan. And the question of you know, what happens if there is an agreement and then it falls to bits? Mm. Do the Americans come back in again? No, yeah. almost certainly not. So, you know, that, that, that element in it um, would be considerably, I think, weakened uh, in this. Mm. And also, if the Americans go, then what about the rest of the international troops? I mean, there's a small, yeah, relatively small mm. force that stayed there since 2014. And so although, they've been training Afghan forces as well. They mm. have, and, and, and the Afghan army, to give them credit, have not done too badly. They did a, a really pretty good job of securing the last presidential election, the two, both rounds, in 2014. But at a huge cost, the, 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 the casualty rate is enormous. And the idea that there are going to be an international coalition that stay there in Afghanistan is not terribly unpopular in Afghanistan. Uh, it's unpopular with the Taliban, but there's a, a very good argument to be made for troops to remain. Mm. And, and I guess that, that as well, that um, you, you touched on this, Danielle, and I'd, li- I'd like to get your response to, it, to, to, to this, Jonathan, is the fact that, look, whatever happens, if there is some sort of a pullout, it's the protection of the strides that have been taken. Yep. Because, yes, there have been the preservation as such of basic human yeah. rights, also education, healthcare, women's rights as well. Yes, absolutely. And how you safeguard those in a situation where you're likely to have the Taliban fairly united in, in their side and fragmentation, as I understand it, among the other political groups there uh, comes down to the whole question of enforcement, implementation of what has already been achieved and then pushing forward to a lot more. Mm. And, and Daniel, let's let's look at another point here, because, yes, we know that the reason or certainly from Mr. Trump's perspective to get to get out of Afghanistan is acting on a promise to to the base to bring American troops home, also reinforcing this isolationist position. But 
Is there also a flip side to this that maybe if if he can crack a deal, it's two fingers up to to Obama, to to Bush, all the predecessors, because they didn't get the big deal. So look, you know, against all the odds, I managed to achieve it. I pulled something out of the hat. But you don't get a big deal with the Taliban and making peace between... uh, But the Trump spin spin machine will certainly present it that way. The Trump spin machine, I'm sure, will do so. But then people who are buying that spin will eat it up. Uh, no matter what. Afghanistan has been subject to nearly four decades of continuous war. There is not the big deal, the giant, fantastic signature on a piece of paper that's going to uh, that's going to end that. He's not. He's not going to do it in Afghanistan. I don't think he's going to do it in Israel, Palestine. I think we should really stop uh, focusing on the, even the concept of the big deal and uh, remember who we're dealing with in the White House. <laughs> and there's the, the cautionary tale, of course, underlying this, of uh, the Singapore summit with North Korea and so on, with, with Trump ballyhooing that as, you know, the greatest deal, we can all sleep safely in our beds and so on and so on. <laughs> and now you've got the head of uh, intelligence saying, actually, North Korea is going on doing what it was doing before. Uh, and Trump saying, I don't really believe this, but I think we know who we think is telling the truth here. <laughs> but also as well, you've got to look at Trump's personality when you you look at the, the potential for a deal in Afghanistan, because there, there's always the fear that whatever progress is made could suddenly be derailed, courtesy of a stray comment or an unguarded remark on Twitter. So is there anybody left who can tape his mouth and also suppress his fingers? <laughs> well, there is some very, there are some very experienced and very decent people working in that so behind far, the scenes. But, so far. <laughs> but I'm still on, you know, in, in this arena, as in so many others, I'm just still hunkering down and just hoping we can make it through to the end of his term, his yeah. single term. And certainly the end of the week as well. <laughs> well, indeed, you know, you don't know how long you've got, ever. That's the trouble. <laughs> but, but what about uh, Afghanistan's neighbours as well? Because what what yeah. is the mood music among um, amongst them, very briefly? Because there's always been this antagonism between Pakistan and the United States. But is there a sense now that perhaps it's time that they use whatever influence they can bring to bear on this? Well, Pakistan are, are, the, are the big players. I mean, they've just released the who's the, the person who's going to lead the Taliban negotiations from eight years in in prison. I mean, the thing that recurs over and over again when you talk to Afghans about American involvement in their country uh, is they say, well, if America is interested in rooting out terror and rooting out the Taliban, then why doesn't it go after Pakistan? Because Pakistan is the source uh, of all of this. Well, you know, Afghans are quite fond of of blaming Pakistan for for a lot of things, but uh, Pakistan does need to take uh, quite a lot of responsibility. And in terms of its other neighbours, I'm sure Iran would be delighted to see uh, American forces out of Afghanistan for its own reasons. Okay, And so would China, for for the reasons of seeing America uh, moving out and scuttling, as it were. On the other hand, China is quite worried, despite its its close relationship with Pakistan, about that whole area and the knock-on effect on its own western province of Xinjiang, where, of course, it's had a huge clamp down, a million people or so in re-education camps and so on and so on. And it's always absolutely neurotic um, about security and stability in that part of the region, which is a long way from being the reality. Okay, well, Jonathan, I'm glad you mentioned China, because China, as it happens, is reviewing its policy of lending money to developing countries. Well, that's the question. Is it doing that review? Well, judging from remarks by the head of the Beijing-based Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, that does appear to be the case, because in a newspaper interview, Jin Liquin said... You cannot go on and on putting money in without taking a review of what's going on to rebalance. He also denied claims that the bank had lent recklessly to some countries. Now, before we 
explore this idea of reckless lending, Jonathan. China says that it's rebalancing its lending. So how far is it prepared to go with that process? Well, it, it, it definitely there has been a change since uh, the last autumn, uh, let us say, where China realised that handing out the kind of big sums, which it was, without any proper checks, um, was not uh, necessarily acting to its uh, advantage. This, of course, all under the umbrella uh, Belt and Road Initiative uh, backed by Xi Jinping. But that became a kind of piecemeal collection of lots of different aid and assistance programs without always any common theme except for let's plant the Chinese flag more widely throughout the world and the financial cost of that is coming home and you find in China now on blog sites uh, quite a lot of people who've been asking you know why are we spending all this money to other countries when we are still a developing country ourselves. It is a fair enough point I guess but I mean Daniel let's just broaden this out a bit because yes there is the questioning about um, the 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 value in, in handing out this money but also as well what about problems inside China itself because the latest economic data has uh, left officials uh, a little bit concerned, and not just officials, of course, in China, but also the international community, the financial community. I think it makes sense to look at all of this in the context of uh, of China's economic downturn. And as uh, uh, talks carry on with America over this uh, ongoing trade war, I mean, I'm not an economics expert, but it seems to me that China's growth was so was unsustainable in the first place and so and so huge. And as Jonathan said, uh, stretching its, its its influence around the world. Um, the cliche is that China is in, interested in business rather than political influence. But even so, there there is a, a limit to the kind of return that you can make when you spread yourself that thinly. Mm. Yeah, and there's been quite a lot of alarm. Is getting China is getting pushback from some of the countries that signed up. Uh, to its largesse early on. We had that in Sri Lanka, in the Indian Ocean. We've had it from Mahatia in, in Malaysia, renegotiating contracts. Just today, uh, the government in Myanmar said it wasn't going to go ahead with a dam uh, project and so on. So, you know, the Chinese are beginning to realise that they've got to handle this a bit more subtly. Mm. But it all comes back to, to soft power, really, using yep. money. So where does, that, where does that leave this strategy? It's not quite in ruins, but it's certainly being re praised yeah it's, it's not in ruins but it's the, the worry is that uh, countries and particularly corrupt regimes with whom china has worked have built up debt burdens for for the individual recipient countries which they cannot uh, afford to service and are going to have a very bad effect on them at home and that uh, that is something of that is of growing concern mm. i mean in light of what jonathan said so, danielle it does really appear that um even though china has denied that it's been reckless with its lending. The evidence does appear to suggest otherwise, because at the end of the day, you could argue that by getting countries into debt, it gives Beijing additional leverage over their affairs. Now, that may work to a certain extent, but obviously not completely if you've got the Malaysians who are actually renegotiating debts and uh, the, 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 the government in, in Myanmar saying, well, actually, we're not going to have this down. We're going to do things differently. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's the the idea and the idea of, of, of investment in this way is it's not just money making. It's also about the amount of uh, influence you can exert and outside your your own uh, immediate sphere of, of influence as well. But I think we've seen in, in numerous for that China is not impervious to criticism and it's not impervious to um, to negotiation as well. 
And Jonathan, how is this going to impact on China's relationship with Taiwan, the possibility of um, severed diplomatic relations and again swirled in with the money issue? Well, Taiwan is, you know, it is a a perennial uh, issue, of course, for Beijing and the People's Republic. And Xi Jinping made this what sounded like quite a strong speech about Taiwan is always part of China and we have the right to uh, regain it as we wish at the beginning of the year. In fact, it was just a restatement uh, of existing uh, positions. And I don't think, you know, anything is really changing uh, in Taiwan. The question more is how the trade war develops and how that affects Taiwan and Taiwanese uh, technology companies particularly. Mm. And certainly, look, this 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 has not been overlooked by the, the Americans. They'll obviously be... Yep rather delighted about this, I would imagine, because they, from their perspective, the, the, the money isn't working. They're having to cut back. So it leaves the field a little bit wide open, so to speak, in terms of who could potentially fill the breach. Yes, and the, there have been various initiatives by the Trump administration to launch new programs, but we haven't seen them actually resulting in very much so far. And there are other players in this, Japan, for instance, which is quite active in economic assistance in Southeast Asia uh, and South Asia. Uh, And there, China is going to face, uh, you know, a more questioning, if you like, challenging um, attitude from recipient nations uh, in the future. But I think that that fits in with what the Xi Jinping administration wants, which is a more effective control of the foreign aid Mm. But it also comes back as well to, to the economy. We talked about this before yeah. because the last set of numbers, well, by, by Western standards, pretty good. I think it's yeah, about six point seven percent or something. Yeah, yes, 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 yeah. Yes. but again, that's that's a slowdown from the giddy heights of nine percent, ten percent, etc. So again, um, that's that could be the determinant on this, couldn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's down pro- to economics at the, the end the of the pro- day. The problem for for China is always, and it is there to balance the need for growth, which the Communist Party. Uh, promises to the Chinese citizens in return for a lack of political rights and on the other hand the need to balance the economy get rid of the very high debt level and so on which slows down growth and they're eternally juggling uh, those two. Okay then let's leave it there for the moment because you're listening to Midori House with me Juliette Foster and my guests Daniela Pellet and Jonathan Fenby and coming up next we're going to ask if France's disruptive yellow vest movement stands to change the tone of public discourse in France for years to come. California, here we come. Monocle has arrived on the West Coast. Our new shop and bureau is open at Platform, the design quarter in Culver City that's home to 100 boutique retail and culinary brands. If you're in town, pop along to meet the team, pick up the latest issue of the magazine and browse our exclusive collaborations. From elegant stationery to smart jackets, plus plenty in the way of print, of course. Discover our range from furniture to fragrances, courtesy of brands from the US and beyond. Intrigued? Then come and see us at our new LA outpost at Platform in Culver City. We look forward to meeting you there. Now, still with me are Daniela Pellet and Jonathan Fembe. Now, is Emmanuel Macron the comeback kid of French politics? The president's fortunes appear to be on the up, with the latest polls revealing that his ratings are starting to rise. They took a hammering after demonstrators in yellow jackets led a series of anti-government protests in major cities. The government responded by holding town hall meetings up and down the country in which people are given the chance to express their grievances to public officials. Now, 
Jonathan, we've talked about this on more than one occasion. Yeah. Me, you are the go-to person about France. <laughs> You've written quite a few I've books on them, books, yes. a number of books. But look, the ratings are heading in the right direction. But as yet, there's no reason for Mr. Macron to open yeah. the champagne. But having said that. Are these town hall meetings a step in the right direction because he's been accused of being Napoleon, yeah. arrogant, yeah. <laughs> and a 21st century version of Louis XIV without the sun rays, that sort of stuff? Yes, yes, yes. And Jupiter up there somewhere <laughs> in the clouds. Jupiter has come down to earth. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And Macron is learning that he needs to communicate much better. I mean, he, he set off... Uh, buoyed by his uh, election victory, which was important in the presidential elections, but even more striking in getting him a parliamentary majority out of nowhere and so on. And he now realises that he can't rule from on high and needs to talk to people. And that that is a positive uh, effect. On the other hand, a lot of the uh, reforms that he is promising and a lot of the things that the gilets jaunes, uh, the yellow jackets are angry about, are going to take a very long time to show any positive uh, outcome there. I mean, his changes to the labour reforms will, we remember that in Germany, it took 10 years mm. for this really to, to feed through into employment and so on. And there's a lot of unhappiness bred over the last uh, 30, 40 years in France, which he's having to deal with. Mm. And, and Daniela, look, I mean, the, these debates have been going on now for a wee while, but from what you've gleaned, is there an overriding theme which emerges from these debates? And how willing is the government to respond? Well, I think it was a clever move because I think something that underlies these kind of, uh, of of movements and populist protest movements is this desire to be heard. People want to make their voices heard and they want to be recognised. Um, the problem is is, is that um, there is this is not a cohesive political movement. The whole point of the Gilets Jaunes is that they are uh, they have no. Uh, firm leadership and they take in uh, the full spectrum of, of political views, although I get a bit itchy about them since they seem to be uh, a little bit fond of the sort of conspiracy Rothschild. Uh, yeah. mm. uh, there's a right, horrible yeah. anti-Semitic undertone, right, isn't there? Yeah, yeah and there's, and there's, there's a, a racist undertone mm. in general, but without tarring them all w- with the same brush, the fact is it is a very diffuse movement. So... We're talking about feelings here, the feeling of being heard and the feeling of making progress. So I think that's a, I think it's down to something intangible like that. In general, you have protest movements like this. What will happen is that one or two figures will uh, emerge and take part in the mainstream political process. But it's too early for, to see that anything like that happening now. Mm. But there is the concept of engagement, Jonathan, because yes. you know he's, he has been humbled, or certainly that's the appearance that, that, that comes out. But on the one hand, it's very good for a president to, to listen and to be connected, to engage the public. But on the other hand, could that political engagement on the part of the public be counterproductive? Could it come back to bite in the future? Well, yes. I mean, we're, we're in a very uncertain position, uh, situation here in Paris, because uh, in, in France, because France had a fairly clear, stratified political system uh, under the Fifth Republic. Macron blew all that up uh, as far as the government and the administration was concerned at the presidential and parliamentary elections. He's humbled the opposition, who are fragmented and really uh, pretty ineffective, except to some extent for the National Front, now renamed as the National Rally and so on, which is still there. Um, and in a sense, you could see the Gilets Jaunes as being the reaction on the other side, on the opposition, to this kind of uh, upheaval 
that we've seen on the political landscape there. But it's very, very difficult to deal with because, as Daniela was saying, that we don't know quite who the leaders are. Uh, One uh, lady said uh, uh, the early, I think, the the weekend that she would run a list in the European elections this summer, but immediately a lot of the other gilets jaunes said, no, 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 we don't do that kind of thing. So, you know, they're divided among themselves. And even at the extreme in Paris last weekend, there were hard left and hard right uh, people wearing yellow jackets, whether you really can call them gilets jaunes or not, jaunes or not uh, is another question, who started fighting each other in the streets in a pretty violent manner. So, you know, I don't know where we are. Mm. And the, the trouble is, Macron, a lot of the people he's talking to, the mayors and so on, are in a sense the establishment of, of outside Paris, of the provinces. But even, uh, even though the, 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 the actual mayor's palace, so to speak, is, is meant to be the place where ordinary yeah. members of the public are supposed Come. to gather and vent their spleen. Yes, yeah. Well, we, he, I mean, he's gone back to Louis Sixteenth, who, uh, before the revolution, had the Cahiers de Doléances, where people were invited to come along and write down what they were unhappy about. Well, we know where that ended for Louis XVI. And I, you know, <laughs> I'm it, surely you're not predicting the same I, thing. No, I'm not predicting that. There, there are a couple of gilets jaunes who, who've, who've uh, said we should set up a guillotine outside the Elysee. But I don't think we're going to see that for a long time. But equally much, I don't think we're going to see Macron appearing from behind Louis XIV's desk on television very much in the future. <laughs> oh right. Let's move on now to our final subject because the authorities in Hong Kong, they are gearing up for the relaunch of a famous tourist landmark. The Avenue of Stars, modelled on Hollywood's Walk of Fame, includes handprints of famous Hong Kong actors and a huge statue of the Kung Fu legend Bruce Lee. After a three-year makeover, it will have a new look that tourist officials believe will make it a lush haven. But will it pull in the punters? Danielle, we, we really loved this story because it got us thinking, um, A, about um, this this attraction, but also the concept of um, the, the tourist thing, the, the thing which, which you really want to see but which ultimately proves to be a bit of a letdown. I mean, that's happened to me on a few of my holidays. Has it happened to you? <laughs> I, think it's, I think that's part of the pleasure, though, really. I have to consider pleasure, it's a letdown. <laughs> it's, it's a kind of wistful, it's a kind of wistful, oh, all life is fleeting kind of pleasure. I confess I am quite fond of, of tourist traps. I will go and look at them. I will take people to look at Trafalgar Square. Um, I was in the Uffizi in Florence not so long ago. And um, my rule is just go early and don't eat anything. And I've always generally had a good time. That sounds quite sensible. I think the Eiffel Tower is still a pretty good argument for the tourist the, the great but you tourist can't really site, go you know. wrong with the eiffel tower no no no, no that's, it's, it's an easy thing to say that having this uh, that having been said there are a lot of other things which i just i don't want to go to and i don't want to see i don't want to see uh, the shape of an actor's feet or let alone hands <laughs> in this you know and i don't want to queue for two hours to see a statue of bruce lee i mean you'd see that on a film i think uh, elsewhere so i'm not a great uh, one for those kind of uh, uh, tourist attractions and so on um but perhaps that's uh, because I'm, you know, should should be should be caught and carried along by the enthusiasm for the shape of whoever it is feet. But and this is really a question to either of you. Do you get the feeling that there are some tourist sites that are just beyond anyone's help? They're so awful that maybe it's better leaving them alone because that's the attraction. <laughs> How bad can it be? Well, I've never quite understood um, Madame Tussauds. 
I'm with you on that one that's, because some of the, the yeah. waxworks don't look like the people they're supposed to resemble. And, and no. they always have. There's always a massive, massive, massive queue outside. But I wonder if, again if it's this sort of self-perpetuating myth. People see the queue and they join it. And maybe I mean, who knows what kind of reviews they they live. But there's something quite comforting about having these. It's like the building blocks of tourism in London. People go to Madame Tussauds, and they go to the uh, South Kensington museums. Uh, I find something quite comforting about that but then as i said i'm i'm very fond of a bit of cheese yeah. <laughs> having been negative before uh just a year ago my wife and myself went to russia where i was speaking at a conference and afterwards we stayed on for a tourist uh few days in moscow and uh, st petersburg and outside and it was absolutely fantastic all these places you mm. know lived up to the reputation that they had and i wouldn't have missed that for anything yeah i mean st st petersburg although it was is... extremely i wasn't you know warm enough it was extremely oh, yeah, it's cold very but cold. of course but the fountains at Peterhof are absolutely yeah, astonishing. Exactly, you know, but I mean, it's too cold for them. Too, oh, right, okay. <laughs> if you really did choose a, a, t- yeah, a cold yeah. time to go, but I mean, look, have any, I'm going to, to, to recite a very small list that I compiled. I mean, okay, has any have either of you seen the mermaid in, at Copenhagen? I have. Yes. Oh, right. So your verdict. Um, as in everything in life, yes, yes, it was smaller than you were expecting. <laughs> yeah. But that's the same with monuments and famous people. We have to prepare ourselves for that. No, it was too small and it was pretty unimpressive, I think. And I, I seem to remember I couldn't quite see it over the heads of the other people looking at it. Yeah, because it does have that quality that if you were in a car and drove past, you'd be 15 miles down the road. Yeah, and, and you'd say, saying, what was that? Well, yeah, what, what was all that? those Where people looking it? at? Yes, OK, so, so the mermaid in Copenhagen gets the thumbs down. So to all you Hans Christian Andersen fans out there, we're terribly sorry. Okay, now here's another one. This is a bit of a trick question. Nelson's column, and I'm not talking about the one in Trafalgar Square. I'm talking about the Nelson's column in Barbados. <laughs> no, I can't say I've seen it, but I'm Sadly, sure. Sadly, I haven't. Is it as tall as no. Trafalgar Square? No, no you can it's scale short, it. It's a short column, is it? <laughs> it's well, quite uh, short. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I have to say that I've seen it and it was a bit of a disappointment. A bit, well, right, right, <laughs> it sounds right. wonderful to me now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, guys, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us because we have reached the end of today's show. Danielle Pellet and Jonathan Fenby, thank you for joining us here at Midori House and sharing your memories of Madame Tussauds and the Mermaid in Copenhagen. Today's show was produced by Augustine Machel researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Leah Fournier. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. More music next than at 1900 hours. It is The Entrepreneurs and we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow.